0: Verse 1 of Ephesians 2, we'll read through verse 10. It says, And you he has made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. But God, who was rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast." For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ, Father, who did go to the cross, who bore our sins, who defeated death, hell, and the grave, rose victorious. And Father, we're thankful that in that death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the good news, the gospel, we find forgiveness of sins and the assurance of eternal life. And so this morning, Father, we sang about him, we rejoice in him, and we want to thank him for the great love that he showed towards us. Thank you, Father, that you were willing to give your only son and to lay on him the iniquity of us all so that we can be pardoned and forgiven and freed and assured of an eternity with you forever and ever. And, Father, we're so thankful for that this morning. And, Father, we pray this morning as we come before you in our praise and worship and now turn to our Bible study, Father, that you prepare our hearts and quiet our hearts to learn more of your goodness, of your love, your grace, and your kindness. That you would instruct us in the way we should go. That we would recognize, Father, that you have given us this book, the Bible, to understand, to read, to study. Because in it we find that not only the revelation of your person, but an explanation of life, of ourselves, your plan for us, your will for us, the good news of the, of the salvation, and the wonderful provisions and promises you've given us <coughs> to navigate life here on this earth. And so, Father, prepare us to hear your word. May we be receptive. May we allow even this hour, your spirit, to speak to our hearts, to teach us the things that you want to impress upon us, that we might come to know you better. And, Father, we pray wherever your word is going out today across this region, our nation, and our world, that you would prosper your word, that it would go out in your power, and that we would respect it as thus saith the Lord. For truly, Father, your word is the only real, eternal, and lasting source of truth, the only foundation upon which we can stand. For Jesus Christ is our rock that lives and abides forever. And we're so thankful, Father, for your word today and for the, per- for the person of the word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we want to bring before you Wayne this morning as he's recovering from his injury, Father. I just pray that you would help him to uh, be able to heal quickly, restore to uprightness, Father, and be able to walk smoothly again, Father. And we just pray you sustain him. And no doubt others, Father. Many more can be mentioned. who are going through, whether it's physical trials, trials of sicknesses, uh, trials in personal lives, financial lives, relational lives, Father. We just thank you that you are a present help in trouble. And we commit one another to you, Father. And pray that, you, that we would look to you for the comfort, for the strength, for the wisdom, for the help that we need every moment of every day. And so, Father, we just pray now that you would direct in our study, be our teacher and guide, open our understanding, we pray, as we look into the wonderful words of life in Jesus' name. You can turn to Philippians chapter 4 as we continue our verse-by-verse verse study of this book, book of Philippians chapter 4. And we've, we're nearing the end of the book, yet in this section of the book, we find a topic that preachers don't always like to preach on. We find here God using the church at Philippi, the church to whom this book was addressed, as an example of giving. And we find here in chapter 4, a big part of it has to do with their g- giving to Paul while he was in prison. They had sent a gift, whether it is financial or whether it was food, whatever it was, it was, it was given to uh, support him and refresh him and encourage him to supply his needs. And we not only find their example here, but we saw in 2 Corinthians 8 last time as well, that God uses these churches of the Macedonian region as an example of what it means to give in grace. And we learn some things from their example last week, didn't we? We learned first of all that in the New Testament period, giving must arise first from giving ourselves to the Lord. He commended the Macedonian believers that they had first submitted themselves to to God as their their God and as their Lord and and made all their lives and all the resources available to him and their giving arose from that. And so they left that example that giving must first arise from surrendering ourselves to God, me and all my resources, my money, my time, my body, as available to him to accomplish his will. And that's one reason giving is in that passage is is done in joy, because it stems from that relationship that we can have with the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, we saw giving as to be motivated by grace and according to the will of God. And in this New Testament period we see nothing mentioned of any percentage or any legalistic standard amount. You know, because in some ways that makes giving lazy and thoughtless in reality, doesn't it? Instead, giving is something we do prayerfully and according to God's will as he directs each one of us. No one dictates how much we give or when we give or if we should give. It is the ministry of God in our, each of our personal lives that leads us to give as he intends us to give, and it's according to his will. <coughs> Thirdly, we learn that giving is an expression of our involvement in gospel ministry. And that was, I think, the most important point we find here because we see, we see really in the scriptures when, when the Bible addresses giving in the New Testament, it is connected to gospel ministry, and that's therefore giving becomes secondary to the real focus of the lives of Christians, and that is reaching a loss for Christ. That is being engaged in the ministry of the gospel. And money just becomes a financial ne- finan- n- necessary financial component to support that ministry. And really the focus is really on the a heart for people, because that's where Jesus' heart is. When the Bible says God so loved the world, it describes describing a God who loved those that were lost because of sin and he gave his only begotten son in order to rescue us and to save us and that's where his heart is when jesus was on the earth he says i will build my church and we know in the bible that church is not reference to a building an organization it's in reference to a body isn't it and he is building a body of believers to cut to know him and share eternity with him in the book of philippians we really see three references to their Philippians cooperation in the gospel in chapter one, verse five, he mentions, he appreciates their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. When you get to chapter one, verse 27, he encourages them to strive together for the faith of the gospel. As we get to chapter four and verse three, he addresses a couple ladies who had labored with him in the gospel. And so the underlying theme that that precedes this discussion of the financial support is really the the focus of ministry, the focus of service, the focus of the mission of believers is for the the furthering of the gospel, the the bringing of good news, because we recognize that the one thing this world needs is good news, but not only some good news, but the good news. The good news that Jesus Christ died was buried and rose again according to 1 Corinthians 15. that's the gospel that Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture was buried and rose again. if you turn over to Ephesians chapter 2 with me for a moment what we, rec- well, we find here that we reckon that the Bible recognizes that man's greatest need is to be rescued it's to be restored to a right relationship with God and that's what Jesus accomplished on the cross see Jesus was more than just a good example or a great prophet or a great man, he came to rescue you and I, not only from eternal damnation and hell, but from the clutches of sin and its destructive influence in our lives in this present evil world. He came to rescue us. And whether we the world acknowledges it or not, the world is lost to God. In fact, that's how these first three verses in Ephesians chapter 2 uh, explain it. In verse 1 he says, "In you, that is the, the believers in the church at Ephesus, hath he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, and so he refers to their past, the t- a moment in time in which they became alive to God. We call it being born again, if you prefer. It become it's becoming right with God. But he said you had a problem. You were dead in sins. Now it's kind of interesting that you can walk up to a living person and says and tell them you know what you're dead, and they might look at you like you're absolutely nuts. You're crazy. You know I'm up. I'm I'm upright. I'm on the right side of the right side of the grass. You know I'm not. I'm not dead, but the Bible says we're dead in sins. And in the, Bible, in the Bible, God often uses death to describe a separation. That's sometimes how we describe death. That's hard to define. We can describe it as a separation. When, when, our, when we physically die, our bodies are separated from our soul and spirit and it goes into the ground and so on. Well, the death he's talking about here is separation from God because of our sins. The Bible says in the Old Testament, your sins have separated between you and God. And, and all of us are born into that condition. We're born dead to God. The wicked go estranged from the womb, the Bible says. They go forth as soon as they be born, speaking lies, which is an evidence of their sinful condition before God. And then he goes on to, to further describe that condition of being separated from a fellowship with God, from knowing God because of our sins. In verse 2 he says, In which you walked according to the course of this world. Some versions might use the word menu of this world. This world is seen as... as as satan's world the ungodly world the christ rejecting world according going on according to the prince of the power of the air the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience and then what he's telling us is that satan's the one who writes the menu of this world he's the prince of the power of the air and he works in those who disobey god and he goes on says say in verse three among whom also we all conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh in other words, we like those menu offerings that Satan offers in the world. In our in our, lusts, our flesh, which is seen as sinful, as lustful in, in regards to bad desires, has an appetite for the offerings of the menu that Satan offers in this world. He says, so Satan wrote the menu in verse 2. In verse 3, we like the, the unsaved world, ungodly men, the natural men in the flesh, sinners like the menu. And so we conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and we're by very nature children of wrath even as the others in other words it's just like everyone else we're all in that same boat and that's the condition of mankind in fact i think these verses explain give us at least somewhat of an explanation why the world is so broken today when we look around us and see some of the craziness that's going on around us the brokenness in people's lives the desperation to find answers in all the different places people are looking whether it's in social reform or, w- or whether it's, it's substance abuse or whatever it is. People look for ways to resolve the brokenness and emptiness that's, uh, that's in their hearts. And if you're honest with yourself, you agree with Solomon, who said in Ecclesiastes, because he tried everything under the sun, he says, vanity of vanities, nothing satisfies. And that's because God didn't create us to live in the lusts of our flesh, seeking our own, our own will, our own way, and our own desires. That's called disobedience to God. And that's something we were by nature. And that explains why we are like we are. I think one thing the Bible does, when the Bible talks about the depravity of man, it gives us an answer for why we act like we do. And it's not an excuse, it's just a reason. Because sometimes we can't handle it. We think, why do I like this? Why do I act like this? Why do I always make bad decisions? Why do I always go in the wrong direction? Well, here's the answer, it's because because sin interrupted man's existence. Because remember, God created man perfect in his image, didn't he? In his likeness. And he said that was very good when he, created, when he created mankind. And yet sin interrupted that and spoiled that image, ruined that relationship, and created a desire in our hearts to satisfy and gratify ourselves rather than to glorify and honor our God. Well, in verse 4, we come to, I think, one of the biggest three-letter words in Scripture where it says, but. And those who have been here know that I like that word in Scriptures because it says, but God, which means God intervened for our hopeless condition. <coughs> Excuse me. But God, who was rich in mercy, that means he doesn't give us what we deserve. That's what that means. He doesn't give us what we deserve. God, who was rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ even when we are dead that means even when we are dead to him which means we rebel against him we reject him we disobey him disregard him don't even consider him we reject the evidence you know the bible says that creation declares the glory of God and yet we find some naturalistic way to explain our origins rather than recognize that there is an amazing designer who created this world and created us and has great plans for us, so we reject that evidence. We reject the evidence of Scripture, which is both historically and prophetically proven itself over and over again. We reject the evidence, and, and basically shake our fists at God. And God said, even then, because of his great love, his amazing love, his endless love, Christ died for us. Even when you're dead in sin, he's made us alive. That is, he's given us new life. That's what that means. He's raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. He's given us a privileged place of a relationship with his son, described in the Bible as being in Christ. That in the ages to come, verse 7, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I mean for the ages to come. Some people think, well, heaven's just gonna kind of be a boring place where you sit around the clouds, sit around in the clouds and do nothing. They're just the opposite. We're going to discover the richness of our God for all eternity, for the ages to come. He's going to display the riches of his grace and his kindness towards us. You know, some people want to think that God is a mean God because they let something happen to me or maybe someone I dearly loved. That is somewhat of a selfish evaluation of life and reality. It's also not a objective one. Because the Bible teaches us why there is death, destruction, and misery in life. And it's because by one man, sin entered the world. And death through sin. Death and destruction came because of sin. It's mankind that has brought sin to our existence. And at the source of that, all destruction and brokenness in life is, this, is the rebellion and sinfulness of mankind. And some people say, well, why isn't God doing something about it? And the answer is, he is. He has. And that first point of intervention was Jesus Christ. God sending his own son. God himself coming to earth to die for you and I on the cross. You know, I often think when Isaiah 53 tells us that God laid on him the iniquity, the sins of us all. That all our names, in in that word all, all of our names are there. Because all of our sins went on his back. When God says, for God's soul of the world, we put our name in there because that's who God loved. And God personally has come to intervene for you and I in our certain separation from him for all eternity in the lake of fire. In order to rescue us from hell and deliver us to our right relationship in himself so that he might help us navigate this broken world. God has done something his rescue program and that is to rescue us from eternal hell and from the clutches of sin in our lives and he continues to rescue us when he begins to change us and teach us how to think straight because the bible says god has not given us a spirit of fear but a power of love and of a sound mind and that sound mind comes when we when we have the mind of christ when we become a christian when we trust christ as our savior life begins to make sense you study the bible and things begin to fall into order and things you begin to understand Life and all its brokenness and problems, and, its, and, and God's glorious solution. And God will someday bring this world to an end and will restore. Where in Revelation tells us, in the last book of the Bible, that there'll be no more tears, no more sorrows, no more brokenness. So God is doing something about it on his timetable, in his schedule. But it begins with you and I. It begins with responding to Jesus Christ who wants to rescue you and I from eternal hell. That's why the next verses say, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works that anyone should boast. It says that by grace you're saved. It's through through grace that God freely, that means God freely reached down to rescue you. The word grace is defined or described often the scripture or, or stated as the word free. We're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Grace is free and it's unconditional. That's probably the two aspects of the grace of God. It's free. That means it's not by works. It's something something we earn it's something God gives us freely and it's unconditional. It doesn't matter how bad you've been, how deep you've gone, how many regrets you might have. God's mm-hmm. grace is unconditional. It reaches to the depths of our sin and, for, and he forgives us because when Christ died for our sins on the cross, he died for them all. Lock, stock, and barrel. He paid for our sins and extends to you and I that offer of forgiveness and that comes by grace. And we then become saved or rescued through faith. That is all God wants from us is our faith, our trust. We respond to his call. We respond to his work in our hearts. We respond to this good news that Jesus died for me. And I trust him as my saviors. That's why it's not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. Another word describing grace. It's a free gift. You do nothing to earn it or deserve it. Not of works. And though religions, by and large throughout the world, whether it's Christ, some Christian religions or, or false religions, cults or whatever you want to call them, have one thing in common. And that is that you have to earn your way to whatever eternal glory they teach. But God says it's not of work. Titus 3, 5 says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to God's mercy he saved us. It's not by our works, it's by his grace because he paid it all. Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross for our sins, died for our sins, past, present, and future, once and for all, and all he wants us to say, thank you. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we will be saved. So we find in Ephesians 2, describe for us the ministry of the gospel. This is what the Philippian church wanted to support. This is what they wanted to be part of. And though, find, though, though their gift is front and center, in, in, as you go back to Ephesians, Philippians chapter 4, it arose out of this burden, this desire to be involved in the preaching of the gospel because God has chosen that he would forward that message through your mouth and mind, through your life and mind. It's something we are to be engaged in. That's we call it the Great Commission, if you prefer, when Jesus told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel, the good news. It's something we share. And so that's where giving arose out of in, in this portion of Scripture. But as we return to Philippians chapter 4, then we, we turn from instructions or examples left to us in regards to the giver uh, to the receiver. Let's look at verse 17 here. As we continue verse by verse, Paul says here, after thanking them, he says, not that I seek the gift, but at, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus a thing sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice well pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to God, our God and Father, be glory forever and ever So here in this connection, this fellowship of ministry in which we're seeking to win the loss to Christ, to bring the good news to people who need to know their sins are forgiven, who need to be rescued from this present evil world, we find not only instructions for the giver, but here for the receiver. We find some dynamics in regards to receiving here. And Paul says, first of all, <coughs> excuse me, in verse 17, not that I seek the gift. And Paul is saying here, I have no expectations, isn't he? it's not that i've had my hand out. And that's a good verse because we often see preachers that way, religious organizations that way, always asking for money, always having their handout, and too many of them are falsely claiming you're going to get some kind of return on your investment if you do it. Paul just says, i don't seek the gift. I'm not I'm not asking for anything. We in reality in the Christian life, we ought never to expect people to minister to us. That's what he's saying. That's the example he's leaving. We never expect people. Now we're privileged in the church to be part of a church family in which we do willingly minister and serve one another, but never to be expected, isn't it? Because our service is never to be out of obligation or duty or guilt. Whenever we serve, we serve as unto the Lord. We serve as directed by our God. We serve as the Spirit of God leads us to exercise our gifts and to use our resources for his glory. And when you expect people to minister to you and they don't, you got a problem, don't you? It starts to create a selfish resentment of others. It turns one internal and, and starts down the path of a pity party. No one loves me. No one cares about me. No one serves me. And that begins to turn to bitterness of soul and eventually bitterness towards God. What is our focus in reality as Christians? Because we all have needs that can be ministered to. Our focus is to see how we can be used. That's what our focus is. God calls us to be used in other people's lives. And 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 therefore we trust God to meet my needs. Because He can lead His children to serve Him. But that should be my focus. Sometimes when people come that way, and you know we've all been there. I've been there. Well, you know how come you know no one's helping me out or no one's doing this for me or no one's cooking a meal for me or no one's you know helping me in my project or whatever the case is whatever the case may be god reminds us that no your focus is how can i be used how can i be used where do you want to send me how can you use my resources to serve others and leave my needs to god because god is the one who will lead his children to minister to my needs if that's his will Last thing you'd want is a someone to minister your needs out of guilt and obligation. Instead, it's much more joyous when it's, when it's ministered in grace because of the motivation of the love of Christ. And so we trust God to meet our needs. And we focus on how God can use us to serve the needs of others. And that's been the focus of this book, hasn't it? Philippians 2, verse 4 tells us, we, we studied this, let each, let each of you look not, uh, not only for his own interest but also for the interests of others. That's the love of Christ. The next verse says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so the sacrificial giving of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the way, deserved to be served and worshipped, is our example, and that should be our focus, isn't it? And so we don't expect believers to give. In fact, if you remember our account, if you were with us last week in 2 Corinthians 8, the Macedonian church, which is a church of Philippi, was part of that region, were called church was, was was described as a church in poverty and yet they were anxious and eager to give of anything there's they should have been the one being ministered to if they were in poverty and deep distress they definitely in a place of need yet that wasn't their focus remember they almost begged paul to take their offering to support the needy saints in jerusalem and so we see here as a re- receiver never expect people to serve you you know I could apply this principle as well to a marriage relationship, by the way. You know, we have no right to expect each other to fulfill our marriage obligations before God. You're thinking of marriage chapter, husband loves your wife, wife submit to your husbands. It's not a demand we put on our spouses. It's something God motivates them to do. Our part is to do our part before God, whatever role we might play. And trust God. Last thing we want to do, you know, the last thing a guy wants to do is put a big Bible verse on the refrigerator that says, Wife, submit yourselves to your husbands. And put the pressure on. And expect it. Your hope is that your spouse is right with the Lord. That's what they need. So they're enjoying the Lord so he can create that mentality in them. But we never expect, do we? That gets us into trouble. Second thing we are to receive graciously. We have to let others minister to us. Paul says here, I don't seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. I seek your benefit in this. It's an opportunity for others to bear spiritual fruit. It's an opportunity for others to express the love of Christ. And sometimes pride can be the enemy of this mentality because sometimes we don't we don't always like to let people help us, minister to us, do we? Because, if we let somebody minister to us, everyone might think that I have a need. Everyone, People might realize that I don't have it all together. That I don't really have things under control. Now who of us here honestly have everything under control? None of us do. But that sometimes, pride it prevents us from being a letting others minister to us because you know, we don't think we have that need. We've got this. And sometimes we don't. And we, in the, in the one of the privileges of a church family is letting other people get involved in our personal lives. Letting, letting them get to know you and share your burdens. Fulfilling Galatians 6, 2, where it says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is the love of Christ. That's a fellowship we're to enjoy together. And so we have to be a gracious receiver, don't we? Allowing others to fulfill... They're to serve in the love of Christ. We don't expect, but we allow. You might say this is teaching us, isn't it? And that's why giving is, is also described as a fellowship, isn't it? We've seen it throughout this passage. It's a fellowship. It's a sharing in life and in ministry together because believers, that's, we share in the life of the Lord Jesus. That's what unites us. It's not a building that unites us. It's not, a, it's not the name on a sign that unites us, the denomination that unites us. It's the love it's the life of the Lord Jesus Christ if you know him as your savior and that's why we 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 are growing together we we're facing life's challenges together we fail and forgive and uphold one another together and we encourage and serve together because we're a family It was interesting on Wednesday night we learned a little bit in the book of 1 Peter about love and he says this in verse 22 I thought I would share this with you it says since you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren love one another fervently with a pure heart and without preaching a whole nother message Wednesday not all over again what he's saying here is since you've purified your souls that is you've gotten become Christians you've grown in your faith through obeying the truth of God's word and you've come to a sincere love of the brethren it's something that they had developed. That word for love in that case is brotherly love. It's the word. F- it's the word for brotherly love, and it's something that had occurred. He commends them that they had grown in their faith to where he recognized a family love, a brotherly love within the family. You that you you've got grown to that point. And Paul's commend, or excuse me, Peter is commending them for that sincere love of the brethren, that sincere brotherly love, and concern and compassion for one another. But then he tells them to step it up. In the last half of the verse where he says, love one another with fervently with a pure heart. That word love is a different word for love. It's agape love. It's God's kind of love. It's unconditional love, undeserved love. And Paul says, step it up. Love one another fervently. Agape love, God's kind of love. A love which isn't conditioned upon whether or not you like a person or approve of what they're doing. It's God's unconditional love and grace that we're to love fervently. In a, with a pure heart. And that's the fellowship that we enjoy together as a church family. And in that context, we allow others to minister to us. We don't expect, but we gracio- graciously allow others to serve us as we share our burdens together and becoming more and more like Christ and serving him together together. Well we go on here in this passage, Paul mentions then in the end of verse 17 this idea of of seeking the fruit that abounds to your account. He wanted to see their their account grow. And this word, to your account, indicates us that there is a reward in giving. Yet you may bounce fruit that abounds to your account. Apparently, God has a ledger in regards to the lives of his children. Now we're not talking about getting saved, whether you're saved or lost. We're talking about serving God faithfully as His child. And he, And we have an account before him, obviously, that's how it's described here at least, a ledger. and God is keeping track of how we serve Him. In fact, if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 4, you'll see this mention because we call it today, and the Bible calls it the judgment seat of Christ. There's a time when believers, when we're with the Lord, that we're going to be going to answer for our lives. And it's going to be a time when God is going to reward us for faithful service. It's not punitive, but it is a time in which our lives are going to be reviewed. God's going to hand out rewards. In verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 4, it says this, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. And so Paul recognized here that he had a stewardship. He was stewards of the mysteries, the New Testament truth that he was preaching and eventually writing about. He, he had a stewardship. And it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. And that, that is an example he sets for us because we all have a stewardship. Our stewardship includes ourselves. We're, we're told to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. It includes our resources, includes the gifts and talents he gives us and our calling to be witnesses for him. And money, by the way, our resources, one, just one of those resources it's a stewardship that Paul's referring to in Philippians, this account that God is keeping and how we invested our lives. Verse 3, he says, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. He says, I, I don't care if you judge me or not. He says, he says, I don't even judge myself, at the end of verse 3, because God's going to judge. Verse 4, If I know nothing of nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this. He says, I have a clean conscience, but yet even that doesn't justify me. But he who judges me in the Lord, that's what's important. What does God think? Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts that each one's praise will come from God. And there will be a time in the life of the believer in which we stand before Christ, and God basically says, well done, a good and faithful servant. And if you go back to Philippians chapter 4, that includes here this fruit in regards to our sacrificial giving. That's what Paul's referring to here. I desire fruit that may abound to your account, the stewardship of our money before God. And so, giving it tells us here one of the results of grace giving is giving is a ministry to which our Lord Jesus will someday say, "Well done," basically saying thank you for giving of yourself in this way. Another result of giving is, the, is to recognize the blessing and encouragement it brings to others in the love of Christ. Verse 18, Paul states quite beautifully here, Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus a thing sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice while pleasing to God. And so we think of the results of giving. We see not only here do we have a, uh, a time we stand before the Lord, for how we used our stewardships secondly we also see here that it, it blesses others Paul says I'm, I'm full and I abound and he was reveling in this supply of, of what was sent and when he uses the word full we assumed it was maybe a good home-cooked meal instead of that prison food probably is what he's referring to and it was uh, it was abounding he had more than enough and it was it was it was Delivered to him by Epaphroditus from the church at Philippi to this Roman prison. And yet when you look at this, when you read this context, you recognize that Paul is, you know, being more than thankful for broccoli or whatever, was he ate. He was really thankful for the giver, isn't it? That's kind of what comes through this verse. He was thankful for them. He received the thing sent from you. That's what he mentions, the thing sent from you. Now, we have no idea what type of what type of uh, item it was, food and otherwise, and or, but the focus is there were things sent from you. And though Paul enjoyed the gift, it strengthened him, refreshed him, a good home-cooked meal. Instead, Paul appreciated the giver. He was encouraged by their care, their thoughtfulness. And that's really is what transacts in this, idea of ministering to others. Sometimes it doesn't matter how big the gift or how big the, surface, the service. It's just about thinking about them, being thought about, being cared for, being loved. It's edifying when others invest in you and I, isn't it? We can be encouraged just in the fact that they thought of us. And that's what Paul's saying here. These are sent from you. You, 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 you ministered to my need while I was in prison. And it reminds us that as Christians, sometimes the best thing we can do for people is a personal visit, is a personal investment in other people's lives. You know, These days, it's easy to send a text, you know, a chat, you know, an e-card, you know, whatever. Or you can do the old-fashioned snail mail. And those are all good things. I'm not saying those are bad. But sometime, and, those, and those are lift people up and encourage them. But sometimes, to sacrifice our time to invest in someone by showing up at their door, or in their project, or next to their hospital bed. Sometimes people say to me, "Well, I don't know what to say." Well, God did not necessarily tell you had to say anything. He just tells you to go, to love them, to care, hold their hand. I knew a pastor one time that was reluctant to visit people in the hospital because he didn't know what to say to them because they kind of knew the knew, they knew they knew God's promises, they knew the answers. They said, they just want I, I had to tell them." He said, "They just want you to hold their hand. You care. You're there." just showing that interest encourages. And I think that's what Paul's communicating here. Because what you say isn't as significant as just showing up. Just like here, the amount isn't the issue. The specific items, my favorite meal isn't the issue. It's the fact they were sent from you. The thoughtfulness of the love shown lifted Paul's spirits while he was in prison. The third thing we see here in regards to the result of giving is is that it glorifies God he says it's a sweet smelling aroma an acceptable service while pleasing to God you know God uses that same terminology in regards to the death of Christ Christ's sacrifice for us and the reason that this simple gift was so beautifully described and commended here is because it was a reflection of his son seen in his children because that's God's desire isn't it he's seeking to make us Christ like and it's Christ who lives in us it's his spirit who plants within us the seed of his word to teach us and to what Christ is like and to make us like Christ and one of the primary aspects of his character is sacrificial love and so Paul says this is a sweet smelling aroma he's reaching back to the Old Testament illustration indicating that this kind of sa- acceptable sacrifice was well-pleasing to God. And so the results of giving in grace for the giver is that it only brings reward, someday a thank you before God, not only lifts others up and encourages them in the love of Christ, but thirdly, it brings glory to God. It pleases Him. And that should be our desire. Just like a child wants the, wants the approval of their parent wants to please their parents, so God's children would seek to please Him, and that's and being willing to being led to be led by God to reflect the sacrificial mindset that Jesus Christ glorified Him. It brought glory to Him. It's acceptable. It was well pleasing, and God was honored. That's the reflection of the love of Christ, and so behind. This discussion about receiving and giving is really the spiritual aspect, isn't it? It's the aspect, first of all, of being involved in the fellowship of the gospel, the concern for people, and bringing the good news to a broken world who need to hear Jesus Christ as Savior. But then also within the Christian family, it is the opportunity to serve and to minister and encourage others in the love of Christ. And show the same love he showed me. And that's God's challenge to us, to love as he loved, let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for uh, this time in your Word today. Thank you for that. You, in your Word, teach us about life and Father, and, and these things make sense when we realize that that uh, ministry is not about money, but it is about people. It's about people you want to reach. It's about the lost, this lost world, this broken world, broken homes and lives and families who need to know the good news, Father. And it is that we should desire to be engaged in and used in however you would lead. And then even within a church family, Father, you call us to to show love to one another, to get beyond even brotherly love to a fervent love for the brethren. And Father, make this love real to us. May we serve you sacrificially. May we recognize we're stewards of everything you have given us, that we might in turn use them for your glory. So use these things now in our lives this day. We pray in Jesus' name.